Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us today for season two, episode one of War Cry podcast. I just want to go through a couple of introductions and we'll do an intent of show as well as announcements. And then we're going to have a roundtable uh, discussion. Let me just turn up my mic just a little bit. I'm not very loud today. So welcome to this episode of War Cry Podcast. We're an all native run podcast discussing data, events, stories, issues, and historical connections about Northwest missing and murdered natives. Thank you for joining for this episode. My name is Emily Washings and co-hosts today are Patsy Whitefoot, Robin Pivashi, and Lissy Smartlout. We also want to give a brief announcement and I'll uh, allow time for my co-hosts if they have additional announcements, but we'd want to recognize that Senator Patty Murray awarded a golden tennis shoe to Patsy Whitefoot, who is our co-host. And the reason this is so significant, they do a whole show on this. They, um, this year they had live streamed it. And actually I wasn't sure why I was in this uh, live stream. And then I started seeing there were people being awarded. So. Um, and there was this beautifully done video about Patsy honoring her uh, legacy of her work in education and both in missing and murdered uh, Indigenous people and advocacy on the Yakima Reservation regionally and nationally. And we just want to take a moment and I saw Robin already cheered, but maybe we could give our own version of round of applause for her and celebrate this. And thank you very much, Emily, for sharing that with our, our listeners. I appreciate it. It was quite an, uh, I was shocked, and, but I was honored at the same time. Thank you. And we saw so many comments from the community as well. This is my auntie. This is somebody I've seen in the longhouse. This is somebody I see at community. This is somebody I see in meetings. And we're just so honored to have you uh, here today with us and uh, always co-hosting. And to us, uh, does anybody else have any other announcements they'd like to make? I think we're good. Actually, I think maybe just recognizing that this is our first live streaming episode. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so the format is correct. Robin is, uh, is our producer and she's reminding us <laughs> that the format today is a little bit different. Um, you're gonna have a lot more in here, a lot more live discussion and the show will be uh, an hour. And this style of conversation we really like to begin with is a round table discussion amongst us. We have this uh, diner here on the Ekmer Reservation that we, we sit at sometimes and visit at. Uh, we were able to do that once this entire year. Um, and we haven't been able to do that with shows, but we really like to bring this, I'm having coffee and visiting and talking about these very intense uh, issues and stories. Um, because I always like for our listeners and our audience to feel like this fly on the wall, like what would you hear if you were to hear uh, things like this in conversation um, from other Native women? And so one of the questions that we had, and we also, of course, open this up to our audience as we consider and think of all the different events that have occurred and happened, the stories that we've read, the things that made our eyes go wide, is we think about what have our families been through? 
And I want you to really think about this um, question as we think about the, not only into our internal families, the ongoing uh, crisis of missing and murdered indigenous women, indigenous people, but also these different acts of violence historically and presently. And, you know, some of these topics can definitely be really intense. Um, I know that, you know, if you ever need to step away or take a break or uh, regroup, that's fine. Um, definitely uh, uh, acknowledge that um, space and time. So what have our families been through? What has our uh, nation been through? And I'd like to start with uh, Robin. We're going youngest to oldest. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Emily. So one of the things that had really affected me when um, the pandemic had started, which is when we started our, our podcast um, of June of last year, was around that time and a few months afterwards, there had been um, talks about Vanessa or Atoy Vanessa Guillen um, being found at uh, Fort Hood, Texas. And just in general, how her, uh, they when they found her, it kind of brought up more missing people, people that they had wondered who are either associated or, or connected to Fort Hood. And another discussion we're gonna have about like boarding schools, um, a connection I'd found of course is just in general, uh, indigenous bodies, indigenous people, um, women uh, in terms of violence, sexual violence and connections to institutions um, and multiple people found within these institutions or around or connected to institutions. So of course, with this is a huge topic um, that we've been discussing as a group is the institution of the military, um, even the institution of schools, things like that, things that are associated with um, like the United States government or any government really, not just the United States, any like government that has its roots in colonial structures and just how a lot of deaths are associated with its progress or with being held uh, secret or quiet in order to help advance the, the institution's progress within the community or within the United States. Because in order to acknowledge these, um, these deaths or these mortalities could hinder uh, whatever is perceived about these institutions. Um, and a lot of these institutions are dependent on the buy-in of uh, low-income people, brown people, uh, with the promise of like class advancement, you know, things like that. So as I was looking up uh, some of the research we were doing on Vanessa Guillen, a very sad story, but what was different about her story in connection to the the 28, 20, 20 some deaths associated with the actual institution and, and base at Fort Hood is that she was the one who had garnered the attention and that came with um, the family being the advocates. They were very vocal. Um, they did not back down from you know, anybody saying, oh, this is, you know, we're looking into this or we're doing this. You know, they did not accept any kind of answers that were given to them. And they proceeded with 
what they knew and what they knew was true was uh, the testimony given to them by Vanessa herself, which is, you know, I, I don't feel comfortable there. I was sexually assaulted there and they believed her rather than believing the institution. Um, so with the family's advocacy, like constant, constant advocacy, uh, they brought in um, elected officials. They had brought in a lot of news media outlets to help them in their cause. And just, they brought to light a lot of um, protocols that were not met or not even created at the time. And so the way that we feel that this of course relates back to MMIW, MMIP, is that there's always this gray zone and this fog of like, well, what's next? Like, I know this truth. I know this person in my family who is missing, but how do I start being that advocate? Especially when you're in the community and you don't want to ruffle feathers. And you know, you may even know the, the perpetrator or you may have heard that this and this. So it took a lot of bravery on the behalf of their family to really just come forward and come together and bring awareness to her case. And her case opened up like a Pandora's box. So of course, the last ones that I found between September 2020, I, I don't know if there's more between the years of 19 or 2019 to 2020, is that there was at least 28 deaths, either by accident, car, uh, like vehicles, um, shootings, murders, some still missing, um, that were not investigated or addressed. And the last two were actually members of the Navajo Nation. And the Navajo Nation, of course, took it upon themselves as a nation to ask for this to be addressed as well. You know, also a part of it, it was like unnamed medical conditions. Uh, a Navajo, one of the Navajo members went in with an unnamed medical condition and they weren't told what it was. And, you know, of course, I think HIPAA and all those things are probably cited, but, um, you know, they had passed away due to whatever medical condition there was as well as people just collapsing, you know, randomly collapsing in training and things like that. As Lucy and I discussed earlier, it's hot in Texas, you know, and it's muggy, but also just this, those kinds of issues where it's like, I have a family member, they were there under your care. Why are they not here? Like, why are they missing? Why had they passed away? Needlessly, I suppose, as the families would take it, you know, like this didn't have to happen. Um, so again, this relates back to MMIW, MMIP, because these are the same lingering questions that a lot of our families have. Uh, thank you, Robin, for highlighting the different elements of um, the difficulty with cases when there's so much multi-jurisdictional issues when there's so much uh, process and protocol that doesn't align when the actual case and the details come out. I think that that state of confusion you're, that you're highlighting is very correct and on point with a lot of our families out there not being certain or sure of why wasn't this uh, followed? Why didn't this process move forward? Uh, I wanted to... Any, does actually does anybody else want to respond to uh, what Robin has shared today? I just wanted to say, uh, Robin, thank you for sharing that story. Even though it's in Texas, it still 
impacts all of us, um, again, because as Emily pointed out, this whole maze of jurisdiction that families have to go through is a major, major issue. And when we start talking about the military and just our own personal experiences, you know, family and the military um, boarding school experiences, it really hits home for many of us. Thank you so much for the work that you did. I also just kind of want to speak to the power structure and the intersectionality of just being uh, somebody or a minority from a marginalized community entering the, the military itself. Um, you know, really, uh, I, you know, you touched upon it, but in so many communities, even as our own, you know, the military promises, like what you said, you know, this economic advancement, you'll have access to education, you'll have access, you know, to funding when you retire. And really, you know, it sounds like a great package deal, but, you know, unfortunately that's a part of like military recruiters, um, you know, position. That's a part of their position is to recruit and, you know, fulfill these promises. And really, once you get into the military, uh, I mean, as a former military spouse um, and seeing the struggles of what my, you know, ex-husband had gone through, you know, he had to advocate for himself um, and really try hard to promote himself to get to the next level. So when I think about those power structures within the military itself, like as somebody who could be from, you know, a low income community or just somebody in general that has issues, you know, in working with uh, authority, legal authority and responding to them. Like I, you know, I could see how incidences of like this power, you know, power abuse occurring and not knowing how to, who to turn to and how to respond in those situations. Um, you know, like a higher ranking officer, if they were to come to me and, and, you know, start something like that, I feel like as an individual, you know, you're very isolated in those situations. You're, you don't know, you're lucky if you know people that you're in the same, you know, um, unit with and whatnot. And so it really gets complex fast. And um, I do think that it is something that needs to be addressed. It has been talked about numerous times, you know, and it's not just sexual assault amongst females, it's also amongst males. And I don't think that's even a conversation, you know, that has really begun, you know, to become, you know, to the forefront yet. Um, so I'm really curious to see where it can go. Um, and hopefully, you know, those families out there that have been impacted and even the individuals, you know, who have experienced those things, you know, that they have a support system and the voice because um, that's just a whole traumatic thing within itself. You know, you're going and you're thinking you're going to be fighting for your country or serving your country in that way, only to be abused by people, you know, in that system itself. So that's my two cents. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that brings up a really important thing about trusted institutions and then how those interactions have played out historically with Native peoples. Um, and we can all attest to how that's touched our families um, either. And again, these institutions have a promise of like advancement or some kind of compensation for participating in them. Uh, it, but with native peoples, we had seen that a lot of the institution has been forced, you know, forcibly participate 
be it like churches or schools, institutional institutions. Um, whereas like we, as Native peoples, we revere our veterans, um, but we also uh, had lived with a lot of our veterans and the things that they, their, their PTSD when they came out of those institutions. Um, and again, talking about our trust in institutions is something that's wavering, I think even overall as a country, not just, you know, Native people have been very aware of these trust issues, but I think the, the whole of the country, maybe even North America is starting to see like maybe, maybe the trust is wavering, especially when we see cases with um, uh, like sexual abuse within the churches, um, as well as they overlap. Churches also ran boarding schools, you know, things like that. Um, so uh, what our families have been through, while it, like Patsy said, these are stories that are based in Texas. Um, we just had discussions, you know, we have, what is the surrounding communities of these bases look like? Um, what is it that, uh, I mean, even around the world, what do the surrounding communities think about like the military presence within their community? Uh, how does that affect the surrounding communities? Um, just the presence of military in general um, is a very complex subject, but in terms of MMIW, MMIP, <laughs> It's all like interwoven and interlapped with uh, like the genocide, with the historical trauma. And again, we're all affected by this. And I don't know, for me, that has just been a story that's been on my mind since I had heard about it back in like last year. And it just seems to be continuously developing. Um, and again, I just wanna commend uh, give a war cry out to Vanessa Guillen's family for being those strong advocates. Uh, you know, they probably had every reason to be scared and not do it, but they still went through with it. Um, and recently, I think there was like a 2020 uh, episode and like feature about their advocacy and then how that led to uh, other discoveries. Thank you so much, Robin, um, for bringing that to light and all these ongoing questions that we continue to have about um, her case um, and as well as the other families that are going through this and um, the ongoing, uh, the, the open cases that surround this. Uh, for this, this prompt of what have our families been through, I thought of the uh, 215 children that were found in unmarked graves in uh, Canada. This is at the headwaters of our Inchiwana, our Columbia River in Kamloops, in their language, to Kamloops, of the Shikwe'emp people. Um, this took me a long time to be able to pronounce Shikwe'emp. <laughs> And I'm still not sure that I'm pronouncing it correctly. So to those people, uh, I, I welcome the language lesson. Um, we had, uh, when we talk about this aspect of what our families have been through, what is the range and scope that has happened? We also think about, there was a time where you as a native person would go outside and you wouldn't hear children playing because they were forcibly removed from their homes and taken to these uh, violent assimilation institutions. Um, these aren't, when we say boarding schools or residential schools, 
Uh, we're not saying like, okay, they're going on a ski trip or this is somebody that's <laughs> parents have paid a lot of tuition for them to go. This is a violent assimilation institution meant to strip native kids of their culture, their language, their family connections. And to have a school that had only had about 50 documented deaths then have 215 children found in unmarked graves is just a horrific process. And, uh, you know, here at the Yakima, uh, the Yakima people, we have people here from Kamloops, uh, from that area that weren't able to make it home due to the coronavirus um, restrictions for travel. Um, their parents are survivors and going through this and being re-traumatized by the announcement. Their uncles um, couldn't, there's one survivor that um, is in the Wenatchee area that couldn't make it home, uh, Alan Ritaskett Sr. And so the Yakima people came together and just decided to hold a, a small ceremony. Now, from what I understand from um, the Shikwetan people, they have a four day ceremony and there's a fire lit. And when the fire will go out on the fourth day um, at noon. And so we rushed to kind of have something um, for these, to honor these children and to take a moment and to be in social distance community. It was an outdoor event um, to be able to align with that ceremony. And, uh, you know, it's something that just people happen to come together and want to hear other stories and you know, I, it's something that I brought my children to because I wanted them to hear and see why we have our hair long and why this wasn't always a right that we had as Native people because they would cut our children's hair when they would go to these institutions. Um, I wanted them to hear and see a survivor. I wanted to see somebody that they had seen in the powwow circle since they were babies as this elder man that was always grass dancing and had a really light wave. Um, and to see that, you know, he's still here, even though he's been through so much, you know, I, I did not know before that event that he had been through the range and extent that he had been through, that he basically had his lung ruptured and as a second grader at that school. Mm. And you would never expect that from his demeanor and his lightness and his dancing and his personality. He always has a smile and a handshake. Um, as well as the people I haven't been able to uh, see in person. You know, another survivor of the, um, that residential school in Kamloops has been in my home before. We've shared meals together. And um, their favorite thing is just to razz and tease my husband <laughs> a lot and a really joking demeanor. Um, and I just, you know, really just extend my heart to the survivors and the families that are still going through this process of finding their loved ones, of being uh, and having their stories reaffirmed. Now, um, there's another reason why I believe this uh, ceremony is so important historically. Uh, we have a uh, oral history that connects and talks about our foods and from the Atwai uh, Johnson Maninik, he's talked about 
you know, where our huckleberries come from. And they said that, you know, and passed on to uh, others that this land where this had happened, that's where Spilei, our coyote, had gotten our huckleberries to bring to our people. And so we are tied and connected to uh, them in a way that I uh, hadn't realized um, until I, you know, remembered that story, hearing that story again. So I, um, you know, as Native people do, we do have serious moments, but it gets so heavy. So we joke and we say things. And uh, so when uh, Johnny uh, Casper, uh, the son of one of the survivors was organizing this event, uh, you know, and he was, we were um, eating afterwards. I said, well, I guess the ceremony is the least we could do since we took all your huckleberries from you. <laughs> it's one of the favorite foods that we have on our ceremonial tables. And when we see this process, when we look at this process of North, we, we know that they had a truth and reconciliation process in Canada. They had a report with over 90 different recommendations to take. They had funding to look and search for the kids. And as I understand, they didn't ever really pull from that pot. They didn't really move forward with the steps and the actions. And so that's also hurtful to know that, you know, you can just have a pause on your family's case. You know, what our families have been through and what we can identify with is, you know, having our stories questioned. You know, the kids that were there saw, obviously saw kids not be there anymore. So after all this time and being validated, it's an emotional process to have your trauma validated. Um, and, you know, people are paying attention. In the United States, we haven't had any real sense of reporting. We haven't had any real sense of uh, public reporting or of um, examination or of a reconciliation of what the boarding schools have done. But this week, uh, Secretary of Interior Deb Holland made an announcement that they will be reviewing the boarding schools uh, and, and the policy, the federal policies that impacted our Native communities and our Native people. You know, I'm the first one in three generations not to attend a boarding school. And we not only think of, um, of boarding schools as just this kind of singular event and element within, this, uh, within our lives, we also think about how this is, um, how additional targeting has happened. So for example, we had covered this Dusky Maidens in Demand horrific article that was published in 1910 in uh, our previous episode and how you could go up and marry a Yakima woman, get her land and how much you could earn for it. Um, and when we look at that, this was published in Oklahoma and other states, we see that some of our children were taken to these states where then they were telling you how to go and target our children, our women. We have other accounts from families that, you know, they were followed back on trains, their native children were. And so my, uh, I really want to extend a, my heart to those people that hold those oral histories and those stories and that truth about the impact of boarding schools, about the impact of being targeted um, and about the ongoing work that is to come. So that's my piece.
<clears throat> uh, just for time's sake, I want to uh, turn it over to Lucy to cover um, some of hers. And I know that actually Patsy will talk a little bit more about boarding schools as well. So maybe we'll respond um, there, but I, I don't want to miss out on time. Neither, neither do I. And I think, um, you know, the, the reoccurring theme here, like what Robin had mentioned is just this, you know, trusted institutions and our overall history with them. And what does that look like? And um, I think it's also evident, you know, like what we're experiencing in the United, in Canada is, is not so different from what we have experienced here. And, you know, I also think about like, historically how much our history has been censored and how much research or information that we don't have access to, you know, um, of previous work that's been done, you know, on the impact of boarding school or even just, you know, federal government with American Indians and Alaska Natives in general. Um, and I do know that it was just announced today along with the 215 children that they found an additional 751 unmarked graves at another residential school up there in Canada um, in Saskatchewan. So um, through social media, I've been seeing a lot of um, posts about this and um, I didn't realize how many First Nations people that I follow. And so I thought it was really interesting and exciting too, because you know people really want to be there for each other. So they're advertising, you know, um, crisis lines to put out there because of, you know, the trauma that's being experienced right now, and and you know being put out into that into the community. I I can't even imagine what that's like. And as somebody whose grandmother had gone to boarding school, you know that's. That's the extent of my knowledge as, as far as, you know, anything goes in regards to, you know, my side of the family or my dad's side of the family. And so when I think about the intergenerational trauma that has happened because of the boarding schools and, you know, I feel like we're just barely scratching the surface with Deb Halen, um, you know, talking about this investigation and, and looking at those things. Um, so it will be really interesting to see what happens if, if things will be, you know, uh, public uh, and out there or things will, you know, be kind of kept on the down low, like what we're seeing with the military and, you know, the sexual assaults and whatnot. Um, but I also just, you know, want to quickly bring up how, you know, questioning how NAGPRA, uh, the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, could apply to this, you know, we have numerous boarding schools in, across, you know, the United States, and some of them have been returned back to our tribes, or others are, you know, just there, and are we have like historical spots like um, Fort Simcoe, what we have here in, in Yakima, and so I'd be really curious um, to see, and, and it makes me sad to even think about it, is like, why do we have to go through this process, you know, to repatriate our own family, you know, um, to have to go through government approval and, you know, this bureaucratic process to just even, um, you know, request for our remains back so they could be properly buried. Um, and and what, that, what that means, you know, in, in so long we've been dehumanized. And so it, it frustrates me that there's a whole political process 
you know, for our families. Um, but I also just want to switch gears really quick and briefly mention that it is Pride Month. And um, in recognition of Pride as a, a parent who misses a lot of Pride events, I just wanted to also just give some quick statistics from Sovereign Bodies Institute. So um, they mentioned since 2010, 64% of the 36 cases in their two-spirit and indigenous LGBTQ communities have um, occurred. So for those that may not be familiar with it, um, that basically means that um, 64% of those 36 cases were identified as two-spirit and indigenous LGBTQ community. Um, and I'm sure that's underreported uh, just because I feel like that community is so overlooked and statistics are high just within the LGBTQ community in general about, you know, youth being homeless are, um, you know, not accepted. And so they're not accessing the services that they need. And so um, I just wanted to mention that and put that out there. If there are LGBTQ youth or, you know, individuals that are questioning, just know that, um, you know, we're trying reach out to people that you know, um, you know, if there's something you need to talk about, just keep trying. But that's, that's what I would want to encourage um, our American Indian Two-Spirit questioning youth at this time. But I'm going to turn it over to Patsy because I want to make sure that we have enough time to, to wrap everything up. Thank you very much, Lucy. <clears throat> just listening to the conversation this morning, there was just a you know, number of things going through my head, but I want to continue to follow up on you know, the institutions that have been a part of our life um, from the colonization of America. And we really have to go clear back and then some, based on some of the research that I've done, um, we have to go back you know, across the country to know what, what the thinking was of you know, the settlers and the colonizers. When you stop to think about you know, why did the people even come here, um, you know, there are many accounts of the fact that uh, people want, were avoiding persecution, um, they were looking for freedom and those kinds of things. And so um, one of the reasons, one of the main reasons people came to this country, you know, other than, you know, the fact that, um, uh, you know, we were taught as children that Columbus founded America. And of course, we know that's not true. Uh, our history and our accounts will show um, even more. Um, I think uh, across, uh, across oceanic journeys were going on amongst all people around the world, particularly amongst our indigenous people. And, and we have stories as well of indigenous people uh, trading uh, throughout the world. And so it's a matter of us having to correct the narrative, but also having people even believe the narrative that, that we're, you know, I think we've undertaken not only through um, the various documents, but I think more importantly, our, our rich oral history that we have and so we have to take that oral history and really understand you know, what did happen with our people. And that's really one of the reasons that we're having this podcast is to bring these stories forward because the stories that we're talking about, our lived experiences, our shared experiences, aren't what's out in mainstream media, in mainstream America. And so we have to go and do that work our, our, ourselves 
you know, as interested individuals, but also families who've been impacted by these issues that we're discussing today with regard to boarding school, the military, uh, public education, and the list goes on. <clears throat> so I just wanted to highlight that because I think it's important that we understand these uh, institutions, but we also ha have to understand those policies and laws that were put in place, like Lucy mentioned about NAGPRA, or you know, Robin mentioned about the recruitment of young people into the mil military, and then you know, Emily's talking about the boarding school. It, we really have to do our homework ourselves. And unfortunately, this isn't taught to our us in our public education. It's not taught to our children today. It's not even taught in higher education as a teacher. It's something that I did not receive in my own education, my teacher education program here at Central Washington University. So it's a lot of work that we have all had to do ourselves is to Put these pieces together to sometimes I say it's to put these pieces to help ourselves to wonder why we're so crazy sometimes <laughs> it's like this my I have a friend she's a therapist over in Bainbridge and she talks about this crazy making that goes on in our families as native people because sometimes with you know all these institutions and policies etc it makes you do feel like you're crazy and then you have to work through the maze of it all, the jurisdictional maze in particular. So it's no wonder that we're all about crazy making sometimes. But on a serious note, I just wanted to briefly talk about, you know, some of the research that I've been doing with regard to um, the boarding schools, because as was shared by Robin, all of these issues that we're talking about are very closely related in one way or another. So when we start taking a look at the whole policy of boarding schools. Um, I wanted to begin with a, a quote that a, a colleague of mine who's Dr. Denise Lejean-Mordier uh, from North Dakota, uh, she did a study of the boarding schools and um, she cites a Yakima woman who was uh, a child in the boarding school era. And the, she says, uh, the Yakima woman says, I was four years old when stolen and taken to Chamawa, Oregon. The matron grabbed me and my sister, stripped off our clothes, laid us in a trough, and scrubbed our genitals with lye soap, yelling at us that we were filthy, savages, dirty. I had to walk on my tiptoes, screaming in pain. Now, this interview was conducted years ago um, by my friend, uh, Denise. And we carry those stories. I carry those stories because those are the same stories that my grandmother who raised me shared with us as well. And when I go to uh, the Fort Simcoe here on the Yakima Reservation, um, today uh, it's a state park here in White Swan. Uh, it's about maybe four miles from where I live west of me. And then the Yakima Indian Mission is another four miles to the east of me uh, where I live. And I began to realize that these institutions also had um, an impact on me personally in many ways. And just listening to these stories from the elders about the role of the mission and even in our longhouse, listening to our ancestors who are no longer with, with us. 
you know, they talked about some of the, the violence that did occur uh, to, to them or family members personally. And some of that violence also included sexual assault and rape. And, and so this, is, this lived experience is a part of our lives as well because our family members were assaulted and violated in more ways than one. And by being a part of that, then, you know, we have to take a look at what's going on around our communities and within our own families as well. So all of these, you know, these acts of law that the government, um, you know, laid out for assimilating us as Native people didn't come, you know, without great harm to our people because all of the policies that were established did have that intent to um, assimilate or exterminate us. And so that's a very serious when we think about the fact of you know, the missing and murdered indigenous women. I view that as the same you know, as the intent is to you know, go after the victims you know, or the, the people that are still here. And so people start with the, the women, the young women that, we ha that have been a part of our lives, including my own sister and many family members who have been either murdered or have been missing for some time. And the, the role of the churches has had a profound effect on our people as well. When we stop to think about the war with the Yakima during the treaty making era, you know, this war occurred, but the governor of this, of the region, um, Governor Isaac Stevens, you know, he was an individual who wasn't going to negotiate in good faith with our people when the Treaty of 1855 was, was, was uh, approved uh, by Congress in 1859. Uh, when you take a look at the treaty, we really have to pay attention to the oral history and, and the oral stories that our elders tell about that era. Uh, again, where violence, uh, you know, people felt that we were going to be violated. And the kind of statements that you hear from the elders, I think, are ones that we really have to, to hold on to and how the, the population came to be where we are today. There's such a long history behind all of this that we could take, you know, days just talking about this history, the, the war of of the Akma people, but that extended over amongst the Spokane people and our Palouse our tribes as well, you know, including other tribes that were all related to in one way or another. So part of my ancestry also goes to the Spokane people and, you know, things that, stories that my grandmother told us, but were, you know, did, were in a hush-hush way because just because I think from the war, you know, there are things you didn't speak about. And today we're beginning to speak about them, about the role of our people in the war. And it's not just the Yakima, it's also our, you know, our 14 tribes and bands of, you know, the Klickitat people um, and uh, the Nisqually people. Um, I used to wonder why when I worked in Olympia as the state director of Indian education, I would be teased by the the Squally elder Billy Frank, who's no longer here. He's an, um, you know, he has since passed on, but he would always tease me about, you know, you have to be careful of those Yakima people because they're really mean. 
and I, I, I would have, I would just bark back to him and let's say there's a reason that we're really mean uh, because you deserve to be, you know, admonished. But that's the kind of joking we have. But if we take a look at that more seriously, we had to come together to support one another as tribes and work intertribally with one another, which is what, you know, War Cry has and uh, last year we had speakers that were from other tribes, but the work that we're doing collectively, we do have to come together to work with one another, uh, similarly to you know, the work that we're doing here as the War Cry podcast, we come together and depend on one, one another uh, for our shared history, our shared experiences and education that we've had about, you know, how have our families been affected? And you've heard how our families have been affected, um, you know, through the coronavirus. It's taken us back, you know, back to, you know, to be really taking a look at what have our experiences been, not only um, in terms of our health and um, making certain we get the vaccine, but also during this period of time, we've um, been isolated and in that isolation it has per taken me back personally to um, my my own family members being in the Fort Simcoe military school here in White Swan and then the isolation at the Yakima Indian Mission that many children were uh, attended uh, for a number of years and, and in that isolation you also begin to take a look at the history of all of this in the military school military boarding schools. I think the most well-known one is the Carlisle Indian School, but the Carlisle Indian School was way back east, and I understand that there were also people from the Northwest, as well as people from uh, uh, Alaska as well there. So we have to reach, you know, across the world just to take a look at the impact of these boarding schools. Uh, you know, in other indigenous communities as well. So during this time of the virus, you know, it's allowed for us to think about our own situations that we're in with the missing and murdered indigenous women, but also think about what's going on with our family and our own family's shared history experiences. Perhaps we didn't even talk about, and, you know, we haven't talked about it with one another. And we, because of the trust issues that we have with institutions and those trust issues also, you know, cover uh, the gamut of governments. Government, uh, it could be not only the federal government, state government, but even our own tribal governments as well. So, you know, these don't talk about it, you know, don't feel uh, in terms of the issues that we're addressing, but Don't Trust is a book that uh, a, a lady wrote from California. And I always think about that about the title of her book that we all have been impacted in one way or another. And it's up to us to you know, give voice to, to the voiceless or those that aren't able to talk about it. And that's the reason that we're here is to give voice and to be of support to one another. And I can go on, but I'm gonna have to stop because of time. I know I covered a lot, but um, I will continue to focus on these you know, the dialogue that we want to share with all of you during our war cry. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Patsy. I'm going to turn to Robin for a response since we haven't heard from her for a bit, but I also want to just, 
I mean, I'm just taking it all in. I'm probably going to listen to this again and again and again. Um, but Patsy is also the education chair for the on the affiliated tribes of Northwest Indians. So this isn't just a podcast where we're just kind of riffing off and saying like and remarking, wow, <laughs> this is an organization of over 50 uh, tribes from throughout the Northwest, including um, Western Montana, California, Washington, Idaho, Oregon. And you can find Patsy's quote and more words in the Affiliated Tribes Northwest Indians uh, release in which they laud the Federal Indian Boarding School Initiative by uh, Secretary of Interior Deb Halland. Uh, and Robin, I'm going to turn it to you for your uh, response. Thank you. So as I was listening and I was sitting here, I was realizing that um, this is something that comes up quite a bit as Native people. And I know that we uh, have a lot of dialogue and, and thoughts and feelings about what we're talking about, but we, a lot of it has to do with just needing to constantly re-educate um, people. And regardless if that is what we want to do, it's what uh, is gonna be tasked to us as Native people in general, because we hold those histories uh, within ourselves, you know, individually. Um, even those who may not have grown up you know, with their native people also hold that history, you know, mm -hmm. of what has happened to native people. And I feel that even within this podcast, uh, just this episode, we covered war, religion, boarding schools, and military. And while, you know, on the surface, it may see how does this relate to MMIW and MMIP, it directly correlates and uh, affects all of those areas and feeds into missing and murdered indigenous people in general. Uh, because also we see that not just within the United States, but as well as in Canada and Mexico, those are the same issues there. Um, and it's not to say that we are against people in the military or we are not against those who are getting their education. Um, and we're not against religious people, but the institution and the colonial structure of those institutions is what we're talking about, what we're still dealing with even now. And thank you, okay. Lucy and Patsy for sharing kind of like your personal experiences, even on a shorter level about boarding schools, um, you know, I, my grandmother too. So that experience, um, as we kind of think about it, were some of the first, you know, MMIPs, MMIPs, you know, our children, where did they go? What happened? Where are they now? You know, some of those families never got that answer ever. Um, some still don't have it. And I think a lot of this was a, a, a call out to um, investigations throughout the United States, you know, we had discussions like we don't think that's ever going to happen in the United States, you know, any kind of investigation about what happened to the children or any further uh, buried peoples uh, at any institution, um, any of the ones that we talked about, especially boarding schools, because it's not a priority. And we are very fortunate. Deb Holland is, is in there. Um, and we hope that at least some advocacy comes out of this. But the the effects and i think what's good to point out is the effects of these the boarding schools is also during so like being taken away some who were taken away forcibly their experience during the actual uh, boarding school experience and those who had survived and come back that's a whole other issue of like their ptsd and going through and how their families handle it and how they try to integrate back with their people not being able to reconnect feeling like uh, imposter syndrome or anything like that. Um, you know, even my own grandmother went to boarding school, 
uh, she came back and she, you know, even small things. She said she used measuring cups to like make biscuits or something. She was kind of teased and made fun of for that because they're like, why are you doing that? Because, you know, within her family, there's just like, just throw it together, you know, kind of like going off of more of your intuition and your experience, but having to measure everything out was something even foreign to the family at that point. So there was always just like even small divides and what it is uh, that happens when they come back, you know, the fortunate people who were able to come back. And again, we see this uh, reflected in those who went off in the military who have come, even if they had never seen uh, a war zone, some of them still have PTSD coming back from training in the culture there uh, on military bases uh, within the military. Uh, on another level, those who went off for education, you know, those who go to uh, higher education or even just high school, uh, any schools really. So I think in general, it just brings to light the point of trying to institutionalize native people and kind of the, the effects that that tends to have. Um, and then, and I'm sorry to keep harping on about this, and then trying to be like function within that institution. Because one that we didn't really mention, but we talked about in all episodes is um, like the police, you know, uh, law enforcement, you know, the, that's a whole other different thing. But, um, but anyway, Thank you all for uh, listening to me rant on about that, but please, <laughs> next, somebody's next, who's next? <laughs> I'm wondering if you, um, thank you, Robin, for the reflections, I think is, I mean, I think outcry is something that I saw in uh, ATNI's release. This is an international outcry and mourning that our people are going through. And it really reflects that. It's not just presently, but we're mourning for our uh, people of the past. And I'm wondering, Patsy, if you're willing to read any of the portion of your quote or the full portion of your quote to close this out. Um, oh. You know, you can find our full credits in the uh, War Cry podcast description, but I really am just turning to you and putting you on the spot. <laughs> see if you're no willing. problem. Let me see if I can find it. Oh, here it is. Um, I don't have the newspaper article, so we had to revise it a little bit, but, um, you know, I wrote, for me, I just um, go on and I wanted to make certain that we captured the full intent of it because boarding schools impacted not only, you know, us as Native people, but other people around the world. But I just begin by saying, um, American Indian Alaska Native people can trace our ancestors to the boarding schools era during the 1800s and 1900s, which were sanctioned by the United States, United States federal government and churches. As young children, our people were subjected to the government's assimilationist policies by inhumane and horrific treatment to exterminate all that was Indian in us. Upon arrival of these institutions, the children's long hair was cut. Their bodies were washed with lye. Uh, religious, uh, religious and military uniforms were worn. Native language and cultural practices were met with brutal beatings and many more atrocities. These school sites are on sacred grounds and our stories of self-determination and healing deserves to be told. It's vital to our own growth and development as a people that our ancestors' oral histories, personal stories, and the school sites be acknowledged and defined by ourselves as the indigenous peoples of our homelands. So 
as I was writing that, you know, I, of course, you know, was thinking about my, my grandmother and my own personal experiences, because where, you know, these experiences occurred, they're still a part of who we are, and these I view as sacred grounds, and we have to continue offering the prayers for reconciliation and some resolution, if there ever will be. Like Robin said, this is all a part of our DNA now by measuring those the, the cup to make flour or fried bread. You know, I think about those kinds of things because that's how I was taught by my grandmother. I have to, you know, darn my own socks as well because of the military. All of these little things about me, you know, I begin to take a look at myself and examine myself as well. And, and so there's we have a lot of work to continue to do because, again, this isn't written in the history books. And so it's up to us, you know, as women to continue doing this important work and sharing with one another and educating one another. Thank you. Thank you so much for everybody for joining us for this episode of War Cry podcast. Thank you to my co-host, Patsy Whitefoot, for reading that statement, our editor, producer, and co-host, Robin Pibishi, our uh, researcher and a Pride Month declarationer, <laughs> Lucy Smartlowit. Uh, and again, I'm Emily Washings. We're tuning in from the Yakima Nation Reservation, and uh, we wish you a good day. Yay. <laughs> Ha, <laughs> ha,